Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We are continuing our sermon series on the cross of Jesus. And what we're realizing is that it's one thing to know that Jesus was crucified. It's quite another thing to know why he was crucified. And it's clear from scripture that God wants that for us. Lately we've been listening to what Jesus has to say about the cross. And not just about the cross, but actually on the cross. What Jesus has to say on the cross. When you read all four gospels... We hear seven sayings from Jesus on the cross. And historically, these sayings have been called the seven words of Jesus on the cross. Last week, we looked at two of them from the Gospel of John. And this week, we will look at two of them from the Gospel of Luke. Once again, chapter 23, starting in verse 32. I'll read and I will encourage you to follow along. This is God's word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts, Be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus and that we would not be distracted in mind or heart this morning, but would instead, by your Spirit, sing of Jesus by the time this is over. That's what our prayer is, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so about three years ago, I was really captured by Nassim Taleb's concept of anti-fragility. Uh, There are things that are fragile. Fragile things break when they're stressed. And then there's things that are sturdy. Sturdy things stay exactly the same when they're stressed. So to borrow an example, a wine glass is fragile. A sippy cup is sturdy. But then there are things that are anti-fragile. They're neither fragile nor sturdy. These things don't break under stress. Instead... They grow or get stronger even. 
like a muscle. It's a cool concept. And I began to make all kinds of connections about it to my own faith. When I'm stressed by circumstances, by grace, my faith doesn't break, it doesn't shatter, but neither does it stay the same. It grows. And so I adapted a motto about three years ago, and some of you know this, do hard things was my motto, do hard things. And it helped me, and inspired me to show up when I was tempted to check out, to do hard things. And then 2020 happened. <laughs> and in it, I experienced not hard things, but impossible things. The trauma of death in my own family. The unasked for cloud of depression in my own soul. The hard things became impossible things. And I don't know if you can relate. When you live long enough... Life doesn't just throw you hard things. It throws you actually impossible things in this fallen world. And it forces us to reconsider our optimism about human agency. What if there are things in life that we simply cannot do? Well, I think this passage this morning that we just heard surfaces a couple of those things. If we're honest, these two things that we'll explore this morning together are not just hard, they are humanly impossible. What are they? Well, the first is loving our enemy. And the second is surrendering to God. Enemy love is not hard, okay? Enemy love is impossible. And so is surrender to God. We will wiggle out of both of those. As Frederick Fickner would put it, we become artful dodgers when it comes to these things. But I see in the crucifixion of Jesus an alternate reality. A holy space, something that is not in a world order, but something entirely different. At the crucifixion of Jesus, I see two impossible things on clear display. And the first is witnessing Jesus loving his enemies. Praying for those who are persecuting them, to put it lightly, in verse 34. Praying for them. And the second, we, we witness a criminal on the cross dropping his defenses and surrendering. And I just want to allow these two realities to challenge you for one quick moment this morning. How willing are you to forgive or to pray for, to even have compassion on those who don't just do evil in the abstract, but who have done evil against you or your loved ones. That's impossible. <laughs> and then consider how impossible it is to give God a blank check for your life. Simply entrusting not just some areas of your life to Him, but all of it. That's impossible. Surrender is impossible. So we see this morning that at the cross, there is an alternate reality going on. At the cross, these two things happen. And so the question I want to explore this morning is what if the cross of Jesus is the only place these two things can happen? What if at the foot of the cross of Jesus, we discover 
that that is the only real estate in this whole world where we can actually find ourselves enabled by God's Spirit to do those two things. Surrender and enemy love. Let's talk about that. So let's first talk about enemy love. I think the cross of Jesus enables what I'll call radical enemy love. It's radical because it's extremely unique to Christianity. But it's also radical because it's extremely central to our faith and to Christianity. So Miroslav Volf, who I'll mention later in this message, the Croatian theologian says, quote, If you take the love your enemy out of Christianity, you've unchristianed the Christian faith. And this is because Jesus Christ taught his disciples to love their enemies. So Luke, the same gospel, chapter 6, verse 27, he says a lot about enemy love, but I just want to read 27 and 28. Love your enemies, he says. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And so what we find in our text this morning is that Jesus does more than just teach this. He's actually embodying this on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As it was as it's pointed out, we would expect Jesus to issue curses to those who were crucifying him and mistreating him. Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that we heard read this morning about the suffering servant who bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. And it's shocking by itself. But it's all the more shocking when you consider the raw mockery and shame that Jesus endured. So scholar N.T. Wright has described this scene as an upside-down coronation. Kings are robed, not stripped. Kings receive choice wine, not sour wine. Kings are praised, not mocked. Kings receive honor, not shame. Kings save themselves. But not this king. He saves others by not saving himself. And yet despite all of this, he prays, Father, forgive them. And he interprets their evil through a lens of mercy, saying they know not what they do. Now, they're not innocent, but they are ignorant of the true, profound depths of evil that they're participating in. They are crucifying, mocking, killing their creator. And Jesus names it. And so from this, we learn two things about enemy love. Number one. The cross of Jesus is the model for enemy love. I mean, if you want to see the clearest example of enemy love in the world, cast your eyes to Calvary. This is it. Jesus interceding for those who are mocking him and crucifying him. Showing mercy to those who showed no mercy. This is the model. And so Peter points to the cross when he writes to the suffering church in 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, quote, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The cross is the model of enemy love, but it's not just the model of enemy love. It is the only means to, to enemy love. If you're asked who crucified Jesus in a religious history class in college or high school, you could write down the Roman leadership, you could write down the Jewish leadership, and you would get an A+. But according to God, you would be incomplete in your answer. Because the scriptures also attest that it was our sin that put him there as well. So Paul in Romans 5.10 says, For if while we, and he's saying himself as well, while we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Jesus is more than an example of enemy love. He is actually on the cross loving me and you. John Stott, the late John Stott says, quote, For us to see the cross as something done for us, we must first see the cross as something done by us. If all we had was an example of enemy love, we couldn't do it ourselves. But it's been said, the only way you can love your enemy is when you realize that you are a loved enemy in Christ. Which means three things for us this morning. Number one, love of enemy is central, not negotiable. We talk a lot about love of God and neighbor here at Hope. You know this. We always talk about how true freedom, we believe, is being free from the shackles of self-absorption. And released into the life of others and into the life of God. We can actually love God and love others. And through that, we are more human. We are more alive. We are more who we were created to be. And we are released from self-absorption and into a life of love of God and others. But how often, if we are honest, does the love of others circle include our enemies? Those who have or are out to get us. Who have treated us unfairly. Who have sinned against us. Well the same cross that frees us to love those that we're maybe naturally drawn to. Also frees us to love those who we are not. And that too is freedom. Which takes me to my second application. Love of enemy is bold, not naive. So hang on to this one. Some of you have been profoundly hurt by someone. And might be thrown off by this. Is Jesus an enabler? You might be asking. I want you to hear what Miroslav Volk has to say about this. It's worth quoting him in full. Enemy love, quote, is not love which is blind to the misdeeds of enemies. It is also not love which is completely negligent about the safety of oneself or a third party. It is rather a love that can be described as benevolence with a particular goal. 
The goal is not some strange notion of me satisfying a particular need to love somebody who's awful to me. But rather, the goal is somehow to return the wrongdoer back to the good. He goes on, that is really what undergirds the whole idea of the love of the enemy. Not a mushy sentiment, but rather a very hard-nosed understanding. That love toward the other is that which leads the other to realize what the good is. And how he or she has transgressed it. And how to be returned back to it. In other words, our enemy love, friends, is not naive, it's not mushy. It's bold. It's hard-nosed. And it's goal-oriented. And we are freed up at the cross of Jesus to do that. And finally, love of enemy is personal. It's not theoretical. I think we can all get around loving our enemy when it's in theory, but when we call to mind real people... Uh, we struggle. I love how Jamie Smith puts it. In a letter to young parents, he says, Your child will break your heart. And it's at that moment you realize love of enemy is not just about public policy. It comes home. Enemy love is personal. There are real difficult people in your life to pray for and to love. And humanly speaking, I think we can all agree that's impossible. But at the foot of the cross, we can love and we can pray for them. Because at the foot of the cross, it's where we not only see Jesus loving his enemies, but we see Jesus loving us. The cross enables radical enemy. That's the first impossibility. But there's another impossibility in this text anchored to the second word of Jesus. And we're calling that radical surrender. What C.S. Lewis called dropping your arms before God. Surrender. And we see radical surrender with one of the criminals on the cross. If you look again at verse 39. The text says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself unto us. So this criminal is simply joining the party. They're kind of going with the flow, as it were, of everything surrounding that moment. But the other, hanging on the cross, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come to and Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal, according to church history, has been named Dismas. And we can't know if that's accurate or not. But what can we learn from St. Dismas about surrender this morning? Three things. Radical surrender sees Jesus for who he is. Luke loves in his gospel to highlight unexpected people seeing Jesus correctly. Demons, for instance. 
Later, after this text, the Roman centurion will look up and be like, okay, I see it now. And in our text, a criminal receiving the death penalty. What does he see? Well, he sees Jesus as king. He's been given the gift of sight, which is miraculous because everybody around them is, is in sort of full vitriol mode. And for some reason, and you can speculate as you read this text and, and live in this text, maybe it's because he heard Jesus praying for those who are crucifying him. Maybe it's just a simple explanation that God gave him the gift of sight and simply started to see Jesus as actually what the inscription said he was. King. He is the king. And his heart is melted before this king. And so Luke shows us that it's a dying criminal, guilty criminal, who enthrones Jesus in this upside-down coronation. And as the ancient Christians, I learned, used to say, Jesus reigns from the tree. And this man sees it. He sees Jesus as the true king. Who comes in humility and sacrifice, not power and bravado. Who does not save himself because if, the, if he saves himself like every human king, then he would not save him. He came for you. He came after you. And this man sees it. Radical surrender sees Jesus for who he is. Radical surrender also needs Jesus. Dismas, we're going to call him that, asks, Do you not fear God? Shouting across to the other cross. This question is humility before the holiness of God. He is a condemned man, and he knows it, and he's at the very end of his rope. Like many of you are this morning. His, let's just say this, his view of human agency is probably not the highest it's ever been in his life. He's at the end of his rope. And he recognizes his need, and he is enabled to admit his need, and he sees where and only where his need can be met, and send King Jesus hanging on the cross right beside him. Radical surrender needs Jesus and finally receives Jesus. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus receives this man's repentance. He, Jesus does not say, too little, too late, buddy. I've been doing ministry for three years. Where were you, man? Why didn't you clean up your act? Why did you do the thing that caused you to be crucified? I'm up here, and I didn't do anything wrong. You're up here because you did some awful stuff. Why did you do it? Don't you feel bad? How dare you ask me? You know, these are, these are things that we would maybe expect if we were making up a religion. But Jesus here shocks us and shows us, really, this misses proof that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Faith, empty hands. We bring nothing but our need. This man cannot do anything to repay Jesus. He cannot do anything to prove his love. He can simply receive. And that is, friends, the only thing we can do as well. Simply receive. Jesus extends forgiveness to anyone who surrenders. He says, today 
you will be with me in paradise. Which, as has been pointed out, is only something a king can promise. I think I've shared this before with you all. Many years ago, I wanted to compete in a triathlon. And so I decided to learn how to swim. I knew how to swim, but I wanted to, you know, learn how to swim. Not swim. Swim. You know the difference? (laughs) I learned that the harder you thrash against the water, the deeper you sink. So one writer compares surrender before God to floating in the water. Surrender is when you relax into the reality of the water. You stop fighting. You lay down your arms in a way. It's a refusal to thrash. And I think we spend our whole lives, even if we're believers in Jesus, we spend our whole lives thrashing. Don't we? Thrashing. Trying to prove ourselves to God and to others. Trying to work off the sense of guilt that we have about our past story. We're just thrashing like crazy. And I see in Dismas on the cross just a radical surrender saying, I cannot bring anything. I just need you to be merciful to me, Lord. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Because all we are required to bring to Jesus is our profound need. And we can allow Jesus to lift us. I think this means two things for you this morning. Number one, drop your arms, whatever they are. If the criminal on the cross can be rescued, so can you. Surrender. It doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you will do. Jesus alone is king, and if on the cross he sees you, he sees you. And he will welcome you by grace. It's a gift. Everybody around Dismas is wrapped up in the mockery, is wrapped up in the charade. But God opens Dismas' eyes to see Jesus, need Jesus, and receive Jesus. And that could be you this morning. And if it is, I encourage you to open your hands and drop everything. Drop your arms. Drop your defenses. Drop your excuses. Drop your fears and just simply receive what Jesus says today. You will be with me. And second, I want this text to allow you, and this will sound weird at first. What if we let this text allow us to die well? I've heard it said before that the pastor's job is to help people die well. Could you imagine if that's how I answered people when they said, what do you do for a living, Joe? I help people die well. What do you mean? Oh, I'm a pastor. Okay, I'm going to your church. <laughs> no, it sounds kind of morbid. It's, you know, look. The fact is, we live in a fallen world, and there are some deep questions that nobody's asking And it's my job, unfortunately, or fortunately, to point you to those deep questions and to help us find the truth. 
And I think if we cast our eyes to this moment, we see that we can have a peace that nobody else can have. On the cross of Jesus, we see Jesus saying to a dying criminal, Today you will be with me in paradise. That is assurance you cannot find anywhere else. And we could live and live well with that assurance. We do not have to be on a cross to have that assurance. We can live today and live well. And on mission, we can do that surrendered at the cross. Nothing in your story, past, present, or future, can condemn you at the foot of the cross. Radical enemy love, radical surrender. You know, there's a lot of optimistic messages out there that encourages us to do the impossible, and I just want to say some things will just remain impossible. Radical enemy love, radical surrender, both are humanly impossible. Did you hear me? Humanly impossible. But the cross exalts a different kind of king and establishes a different kind of kingdom. And by the Holy Spirit, these things are not only possible, they are our inheritance. And so let's pray. Lord, would you indeed grant us this in increasing measure? As we hear your words, forgive them. And we apply them to us. And as we hear your words today, today you will be with me in paradise. Would you indeed allow those words to resonate and reverberate into the chambers of our hearts for the rest of our lives? Until we see you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.